linguistic objects. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And uh, like you, I'm anxious to hear the last hour of Terrence McKenna's 1992 workshop that he titled Hermeticism and Alchemy, and uh, I think it took place somewhere in New York City. But uh, before I play that recording, I would first like to thank Nada J., Chris T., who uh, I think you might be a Robert Anton Wilson fan, Chris, and uh, Evan H., who uh, sent in an overly generous donation. So, uh, Nada, Chris, and Evan, on behalf of all of our fellow Slaughters, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. And uh, now back to the Bard McKenna. When we left off, Terrence, uh, way back in 1992, had just given a pretty good description of today's cell phone as uh, he was comparing a future multi-use computer to the legendary Philosopher's Stone. And, uh, by the way, if you haven't heard the first three parts of this workshop already, it uh, may be worth your time to do that just now before we listen to the conclusion of uh, what was billed as a workshop on hermeticism and alchemy, but uh, which has actually covered a lot of additional ground as well. And uh, so now, uh, what do you think the next topic was that uh, Terrence would be asked to cover after his uh, computer as philosopher's stone? Well, if you guessed that it would be a rap about Isaac Newton, uh, you'd be right. And uh, so, let's begin. Yeah. Yes, well, Newton is an interesting figure because, you know, Newton is the great father of modern science and he created, he was the one who figured out that you could use the calculus, that the calculus not only figured it out, developed it, that the calculus was a tool for solving a kind of multivariable problem that up until the invention of the calculus, nobody had a clue. And modern science runs almost entirely on the, on the calculus and the various techniques that have been derived out of it, like partial differential equations and that kind of thing. But you're right, Newton himself was was a man with a foot in two worlds. He was a thoroughgoing occultist. His alchemical experiments and notebooks were voluminous. And, uh, and yet he was the founder of the royal, one of the founding members of the Royal Society. And it was the Royal Society was really the first think tank. It was a very modern institution. And, uh, and, and so in the character of Newton, we see uh, the uh, you know the the magical mentality and the and the modern mentality welded into one individual. Uh, there are other cases like this. Uh, off and on over my lifetime, I'm working on a play about um, Michael Meyer, who was a great alchemist and. Uh, 
uh, it's a complicated story, but I'll just give you a little bit of it. Anyway, Michael Meyer was the greatest alchemist of his age, and he was implicated in the Rosicrucian Enlightenment and so forth and so on. And there were a group of people around Frederick the Elector Palatine of Bohemia who wanted to establish a Protestant alchemical kingdom in Europe uh, in the early 17th century, around 1619. And uh, Meyer was part of this group. Well, they contrived to get this guy, Frederick the Elector Palatine of, of uh, uh, Bohemia, named emperor because at that time the princes of the Hanseatic League chose the emperor and they were actually able to do this but then when word got back to the Habsburgs in Spain they raised an army and destroyed this alchemical revolution it's if you're interested it's read Francis Yates book the Rosicrucian Enlightenment but anyway uh, this Habsburg army, which laid siege to Prague in the summer of 1619 and then uh, destroyed this alchemical possibility, there was in that army a young, a 21-year-old soldier who was basically soldiering and wenching his way across Europe, which was something gentlemen did in those days. And uh, his name was René Descartes. And uh, after the fall of Prague, uh, I can't remember the exact date, but I think it was in early August of 1619, this Habsburg army was retreating across southern Germany, uh, returning to Spain, and they pitched their tents at Ulm in southern Germany, which strangely enough, keep your eye on those coincidences, folks, would be the birthplace of Einstein some centuries later. But anyway, they pitched their tents at Ulm, and Descartes, who was not the mature philosopher of science that we know, but just a, some punk mercenary, you know, getting his first taste of life, uh, that night he had a dream. And, the, and in the dream, an angel appeared to him. And the angel said, the conquest of nature is to be achieved through measurement and number. And Descartes awoke from this dream and he founded scientific materialism. He founded modern science based on the revelation of an angel. That's the point. Science was founded by an angel. It's no different from Mormonism, for crying out loud. It, 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 and, you know, they posture and preen about the glory of the rational intellect and all this malarkey. It's malarkey. If, if Descartes had not been given the clue by this angelic visitor, probably modern science uh, would have been delayed for another century or so. Well, you know... They don't talk about that. They don't even want to hear about it. And there are many instances in the history of science where these kinds of things have gone on. The, the, over, the overarching theme here, the thing which it serves to connect all this together, I think, is we've been talking today about alchemy and hermeticism, which is a fairly dry 
you know, it's an episode in Western history, uh, a proto-scientific movement. And yesterday we were talking about how time is moving inevitably toward the production of some kind of uh, transcendent object or the coming into awareness of a, of a kind of transcendent object. Well, the connection between these two notions is the idea that history itself is a kind of alchemical process. You see, the idea that lies behind alchemy is that the alchemist can somehow step in as nature's helper and and cause natural processes to occur very quickly because the belief in medieval Europe concerning, for instance, precious metals and stuff like that was that these things actually grew in the earth. And in a sense, they do. I mean, they accrete very, very slowly over time. So the idea that lies behind alchemy is the idea that if you could speed time up, then the processes which require millions of years in the earth could perhaps be achieved in years or months if you knew how to speed up time. Well, the goal of alchemy was the production of the philosopher's stone, this transcendental material, the universal panacea. What I've been saying here in all these lectures is that the goal of human history is the same thing. Therefore, Human history is an alchemical process of some sort. Human history is the story of the descent of spirit into matter or the ascent of matter into the domain of spirit. It's something like that. And the speeding up quality of it, that's what we bring to it. History is the catalyst of nature which is interesting because do you see in this metaphor it casts us in the role of those little elemental tykes. In the great alchemy of the redemption of the world, we are the elementals. And we are causing a process to take place which will accelerate the emergence of uh, the end state before it might ordinarily have happened. So the idea is that history itself is an invoking and a moving toward a fusion with this uh, alchemical mystery, which is then a coincidencia positorum. It means that the words used to describe the alchemical goal can be used to describe the historical goal. So the historical goal is then... Uh, legitimately describable as coincidencia positorum, union of opposites, uh, universal panacea, uh, the diamond body. All of these alchemical metaphors of completion are metaphors which, if we would but awaken to the spiritual dynamics of history, we could enunciate these things as a goal. I mean, imagine if the stated goal of, his, of, of global society were 
to produce a universal panacea. That means peace of mind for everybody, health and happiness for everybody. You see, it's weird. <clears throat> Millenarian or eschatological thinking has remained with us even though ideological uh, styles have changed. Marxism is a thoroughgoing millenarian cult. I mean, the withering away of the state is no less metaphysical a concept than the universal panacea at the end of time, and I dare say a good deal less likely. Uh, so we may have you know, transcended Christian eschatological dreams, but we still are infected with utopian aspirations. And secular utopianism has never been more strong. It's just that it's now couched basically in the terms of Christian Democrats or something like that. Uh, but if we could uh, raise to consciousness our alchemical heritage and our heritage in the, sh in the shamanism of the archaic, then we could actually see that the purpose of technology is to liberate, not to enslave. And somehow we've lost the thread. Technology is not being used to liberate. It's being used to enslave. Asking the, the mushroom you know, how to save the world and having it say every woman should have only one natural child because this would uh, immediately create a collapsing demographic. You see, if every woman had only one natural child, in 40 years the population of the earth would fall by 50% without wars, without ep epidemics, without displaced people. It would just happen quite naturally. Uh, a, a woman in Bangladesh, well, let's put it this way, a woman on the Upper East Side who has a child, that child will have a thousand times greater negative impact on the resources of the earth than a woman born to a child in Bangladesh. Where do we preach population control? Bangladesh, of course. If you were to go to Bangladesh and meet a woman who told you that her life's ambition was to have a thousand children, you'd think you were in confronting a social criminal of some sort, some kind of complete sociopath. But in fact, a woman in Beverly Hills or on the Upper East Side who decides to have one child is in that category. Now, interestingly, if we want to change the world then, we need to reach those women. And interestingly, they are the women that one would be most likely to reach. They're college educated, they're socially concerned, they're aware of the concept of political correctness, so forth and so on. They should be easy to convince. And you don't have to have 100% conviction. If you get 15% compliance, there would probably be an immediate easing on the pressure on resources and so forth and so on. Another interesting thing about this possibility 
is that it requires remarkably little input from men. It's the first plan for saving the world that I've ever encountered that isn't in the hands of white guys. You see? Now, people object to this by saying that uh, you don't understand numbers are power. A political power political power base is defined by numbers. But this can't be true. If that were true, China would be the most powerful nation in the world, with India second. So that isn't it. I'm in awe of the mushroom's cleverness because... What this suggestion seems to imply is that we can serve ourselves and serve humanity without any kind of conflict. Because one could go to this hypothetical woman on the Upper East Side and say, how would you like to have a vastly expanded disposable income and a tremendously larger amount of leisure time and authentic status as a political hero at the forefront of the battle to save the planet for crying out loud. You know, be richer, make your life easier, and be a hero. You can hardly miss. Now, why are we not hearing about this from any quarter of society? Because I think most people think, actually, that there are no solutions. They think we're just going to run this baby right over the edge of the cliff and that'll be the end of it. Well, when you point out that something as simple, as voluntary, as limiting your uh, reproductive replacement to one child would chop the population of the earth in half in 50 years, people are stunned. You know, they never thought of that. Uh, these kinds of things uh, need to be considered. Now, when I ask myself, why aren't people embracing this? And this goes back to what I said before the break. I think they're not embracing it because uh, probably white guys can't figure out how to make a buck in a situation of collapsing demographics like that. Capitalism wants views us all as consumers. And it wants more consumers. The more consumers there are, the scarcer stuff will be. The scarcer stuff is, the more you can charge for it. The last barrels of petroleum will probably be sold for $50,000 a throw. Uh, And another objection that people raise is they say, well, it's it's terrible to have uh, only one child. The child, you know, children need other children. Would you know what the present accommodation is? Most people have two children. Did you know that no society on earth has ever idealized the having of two children? It's a totally synthetic, artificial idea put in place by the Industrial Revolution so that for the convenience of uh, the managers of the industrial state. Having two children, I have two children, it's a terrible idea. Do you know what happens if you have two children? They fight like cats and dogs. Uh, Do you know how many children the average uh, family had in uh, 1800? Ten. So to think that by having two children you have somehow participated in a natural 
ages old family structure is just a bunch of malarkey. It's absolutely untrue. Well, if it's absolutely untrue, then let's go to one and save the earth. Uh, this is for those of you who don't think that the message of just sit back and watch it happen has any efficacy. Well, then if you really want to do something, no political act you would ever commit yourself to would have the, cons- the positive consequences for suffering humanity that uh, deciding to limit your reproductive ability would have. Yeah. Yeah, also, it seems though that people that I know were very, very bright, don't have kids, while well, that's a lot of very, very stupid people, people who should be parents, well, have tons of kids. Okay. I'm just wondering about the sense of. Well, now this sounds like a plea for eugenics. Uh, is it a plea for eugenics? Well, I. Anyway, you, you, there's a logical error in your argument, you know, which is that you think that smart people have smart children. And genetically speaking, this is not necessarily true. I mean, there's a gene reshuffling that happens. Often smart people attain their smartness through a kind of accumulation of recessive genes, and the next generation will be peculiar in that family. You know, you don't want it, you can run it off the edge. Uh, See, uh, the thing I like about this suggestion from the mushroom is that it's non-coercive. We can think of many plans to save the world if they would just give us absolute power to order everybody around. But here's a plan where men really recede into the background. Now, women have always, within the context of modern feminism, have lamented their powerlessness to do anything about the male-dominated world. Here's something that they could do that would place them at the cutting edge of the reshaping of planetary civilization. And they don't have to get permission from anybody. So, what about it? You know? It's there to be done, yeah. superior types will invade society. Well, when I said that there were certain uh, genetic lines with a a predisposition for shamanism, I didn't mean that some people can get high and some can't. I just mean some people are a cheap date and some people aren't. Uh, I really would resist the idea that, that... that only some people can access these things. I think the great power of psychedelics 
is that they're democratic. You know, Tim Leary used to say, when in doubt, double the dose. (laughs) And that'll eradicate any of these genetic predisposition arguments uh, in a hurry. it, it it, It would be a very interesting world where populations were dropping. You see, it's capitalism... I can't say this enough, is not in our interest. I mean, suppose we were to start, uh, women were to start only having one natural child. Very, very quickly, every time you went to your mailbox, you'd get a letter from a different attorney somewhere in the world telling you that a distant cousin you had forgotten about had just died and that you were his only surviving relative and you've just inherited more land, more houses, more cars, more investments. Uh, because if we're gonna, if you chop the population of the world in half, you don't have to be Einstein to see that everybody generally is going to have twice as much uh, disposable uh, stuff. Here. Suicide species. Yeah, yeah, because uh, let's say we, um, it, well, it sounds like from what you're saying that it would be a really good idea to, and I don't believe this all my life anymore, looking at um, what human beings do to each other, not you know, kind of what, what the earth. And uh, I'm going to take a jump. I said this quote is not well thought out, but the Unmaterialized thought becoming material. Okay, it's happened. Maybe it had to happen because this is life and nothing is impossible to life. So it happened and then guys is okay enough and is somehow contributing with the Well but in that case don't you think then that Gaia must be very alarmed that every day now in the Soviet Union more and more thermonuclear weapons are being decommissioned? Absolutely, because, you know, as we hear, the, the volcanoes are, are increasing, especially underwater. Uh, of Oregon, 20-some 20 were discovered. Well, the yes, the, the Earth is perfectly capable of raising outrageous hell without us triggering a nuclear war. It doesn't really hurt, you know, that, that it must be a sort of displacement. Well, I mean, I don't I, I'm not sure exactly. Uh, as I said, we don't know what we're for. Maybe we are a suicide machine. My, I, my faith is that we're just slow to get rolling and that once the battle is joined... Once every person on Earth realizes that we're in a battle for planetary survival, then people will get with the program. It's just that things aren't bad enough yet. What about 
Well, we don't know what lies beyond that omega point. That's the next question I wanted to, yeah, I was hoping to sort of get back to that, but how do you get here and there? I mean, through all the thought forms, through all the stuff that we hear, you know, from, from Moody and Ring and so on, and you know what's happening out Well, there are all kinds of possibilities, you know. There are, people are talking about nanotechnology. Do you all know what that is? That's this idea that all machines could be made so small that you can't see them. And uh, nanotechno- And if you could make machines that small, it's conceivable that you could actually dematerialize human beings in some way. And we could all, you know, if we were all the size of a proton, we could store everybody in a grapefruit uh, buried on the backside of the moon. There are many different forms of escape. One of the puzzling things, we've talked a little bit about this um, asteroid strike that wiped out the dinosaurs. Well, the people who don't believe that it happened, their best argument is that the fossil record seems to show that there was a dying off of species right before the asteroid struck over quite a long period of time, like over a million years or so, there was a dying going on and then this asteroid struck. And I've thought, wouldn't it be weird if what the solution to the 20th century's problems are is to establish a reservation 65 million years in the past, 25,000 years across, and everybody goes and lives there and the whole thing is situated right in front of the asteroid impact so that no record of it survives so that we are not confused by its existence. In other words, your grandchildren may live in a world that existed before you were born. Do you see how that could be? We could escape into time. We could escape into the quantum mechanical realms by becoming teeny the eensy beensy option. Uh, we could, uh, we could, maybe we're going to invent an engine, the equivalent of the spin dizzy in James Blish's novel Cities in Flight. Uh, if we, it could invent a spin dizzy engine, uh, we could build a starship and just leave the Earth. There are many, many possibilities. The pressure has not yet come on. I mean, we're led by jackasses. We don't bother with our political processes. But let the pressure come on, and I think people will make greater demands of their political institutions. And the pressure is going to come on. One thing I'm confident of is things are going to get worse before they get better. I find myself in the position of sort of cheering it on because it is going to be a forward escape. There's no going backward. Things much, must get worse before they get better. I remember when Three Mile Island happened. I mean, I was, you know, melt down, melt down. If this thing can vent a toxic cloud that makes Washington, D.C. uninhabitable, we'll get action. You want to see environmental consciousness move to the top of the agenda? Wipe out Washington, D.C. with a broken nuclear power plant and by God you'll see action. 
Well, yes, we mustn't get into these vindictive scenarios. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it's generally credited, if you read the people involved, that really what turned things around in the Soviet Union was Chernobyl. It really was. In the minds of the leadership and the, the war fighting plans, and they said, for crying out loud, this thing wasn't even a bomb. It was just a power plant. And 11 days after it partially screwed up, we're able to re uh, measure increased radiation levels over Auckland, New Zealand. One power plant. What if there had been a thermal nuclear exchange, even a pissant exchange involving, say, under 100 weapons? It's just, it's off the scale. So they looked at that and they said, we're bankrupt. We've had it. Then these were male dominator, the male dominators of the male dominators. I mean, if you've ever met members of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, my God, you know, talk about people that it's hard to get a smile out of. <laughs> so, you know, what we have to do is stop looking for leadership from the top because the least among us make their way into those positions of power. I mean, you can see that now. Uh, the, those guys are not fit to throw guts down to a bear, any of them. And so, uh, you know, what we have to do is knock off this uh, fantasy of being citizens inside a democratic state. I mean, what we are are the propagandized masses inside a fascist dictatorship. And what people have to do is begin to form affinity groups, get their own ship together, get their own goals uh, defined, and then move out into it and do it. It's not going to come from, uh, you know, the policy council of the Republican or Democratic Party. That's just silly to think that. A lot of our projections on solutions seem to come from what we think now, what our situation is now. But it is, you wouldn't think, it's almost like you have to take yourself out of the situation that's right getting to know each other know your enemy and they probably will not be your enemy we have a very weird political agenda. I mean, you know, for instance, I don't want to get into an air-clawing rave about this, but I feel as a, as a person who was raised Catholic that I have a certain license to criticize my own subgroup. I think that, you know, the Third Reich was a Sunday school picnic in terms compared to the population policies of the Roman Catholic Church, they will shove millions of people per year into poverty, disease, and death in the, in, in the pursuit of a theological doctrine that nobody understands the sense of. 
uh, in a civilized uh, in a civilized uh, political environment, those people would be placed under immediate arrest, just like we did the leadership of the Nazis. I do not understand how you can call yourself pro-life when the policies that you espouse mean planetary death. That's the program of the pro-life position. More starvation, more agony, more wars, more destroyed land, more toxic output in the name of being pro-life? What kind of a, what have words come to mean? I mean, it's really bizarre. And we, even us in this room, the thing that was so great about the 60s and that is so frustrating about the 90s is people do not get pissed off. I mean, you know, I can, I can tell you this and you can nod in agreement, but, you know, at some point the thing becomes so odious so clearly intellectually bankrupt, so clearly toxic to any kind of human values that any of us can relate to that you just have to uh, put yourself on the line. And I don't know when that moment will come. It's not for me to say. I guess a switch will be turned in the unconscious. But there's enough evidence of outrage and... and uh, uh, muddle-headedness and outright evil around that sooner or later we're going to have to confront it. Otherwise, you know, this is a sinking submarine and, and uh, there is no way out unless people who really understand uh, the gravity of the situation and the stakes uh, make their voices heard. If we leave it up to the institutions that have been put in place over the last 500 years, these are anti-human institutions. These institutions hate the human race, hate ordinary people. And uh, until we wake up to this, we're going to be their victims. We're the marks. Well, how do you like being a mark? You can just take so much of that and then you just finally have to stand up and say enough, you know? And, uh, yeah, JP. I just want to demographically, Japan comes close to what you talk about. They talk about a quiet revolution among Japanese women. But universally, the whole society uses it as a disaster that the, you know, the demographic rate of increase is so low. And no one comes out and actually says this might be a good thing. It's viewed as a catastrophe The Japanese women are having so few children. It's interesting. I'll bet, though, that there are sectors in Japanese society that carry a small smile around on their face because they know then that while the rest of the world sinks into food riots, epidemics, and propaganda, that they will probably be able to ride it through. The genius of the Japanese is that they have been living in an environment requiring uh, careful resource management for centuries. They're masters of two things, resource management and long-term planning. We don't understand either. Our attitude is chop it down, move on, you know, <laughs> see what tomorrow brings. Well, you know, there's a yawning grave waiting for people with those attitudes, yeah. In your book, you offered some potential solutions to the problem. Uh, there's another problem that's captivated public attention, and that's education. 
and implicitly you seem to be an example of the opposite of what this culture cultivates with its education. I mean, here, oratory is alive and well, and awareness of history is alive and well. And I'm wondering, how, how did you choose to educate your own children, and how are, have your experiences, uh, what, what do they point you towards as far as the type of educational reform that this society needs? Well, you're right. Education is the key. And, uh, you know, what I, it's just my opinion on this, but uh, history is, to not know your history is to be amnesic. I mean, if you met a person who couldn't tell you where they were from 1970 to 80, you would define them as a fairly damaged person. But how many people do you meet who can tell you where Western civilization was between 900 and 1600? People don't know. So since they don't know, they can be fed any shit that is out there and they don't know. They have no idea. So the way to gain power is to reclaim a command of history. And then you can, like for instance, I remember when uh, the Vietnam War was breaking out and I was in school at the University of California at Berkeley and and the professor said we all have to read um, Thucydides we all have to read uh, about the war against Sparta uh, not Sparta the war against Syracuse which was in Sicily and how it destroyed Greek democracy and how it allowed the ascendancy of the dictatorship of the 30. And why did this happen? Because the Athenian citizenry could not understand the war aims, because the Athenian leadership didn't understand clearly what the war aims were. All the mistakes of the Vietnam War were repeated in, or, or occurred in this war which was fought well before the year zero. But you tell most people to read Thucydides and they just give you a strange look. Well, it's not because we want to be obscurantists or we want to carry on conversations like Cambridge intellectuals. It's because we want to know what to do with the future. And the first thing you do with the future is you don't make the stupid mistakes that were made in the past. It, like this, this new age thing amazes me. I mean, there are people who call themselves spiritual thinkers who think that the spiritual quest began with Madame Blavatsky, for crying out loud. Well, I've got news for you. People have been over this ground again and again and again. It always amazes me that people will give their loyalty to a guru who is obviously, you know, a grab tailor and a tax skate and a jerk. And you say to them, well, you know, have you, have you read Plato? Or have you studied Nagarjuna? Do you know what Moses Maimonides has to say about this? Uh, and say, why do you follow this guy? He probably hasn't even read these people. <laughs> do you know that there have been some fairly bright uh, people around over the last six or 7,000 years? And, and yeah, they don't have a white limousine or they won't invite you up to their place uh, in the Hamptons or something, but they're good. And all you have to do is go to the public library and read this stuff. And people don't want that. They want flash. Uh, this very sincere people come to my workshops and I realize that they want me to tell them 
this stuff. And because I guess this is better than sitting home on a Saturday afternoon and reading. But Plato said it a lot better than I'm saying it. And so did a lot of other people. Civilization is a vast storehouse of wisdom. But if you don't avail yourself of it, then you have to figure it out based on what's happened since Nixon or something. <laughs> and you're not going to get very far. You know, They trap you with that. The, I'm, I, mean, I don't want to rave about this, but what I saw happen to my own university, I, I think that a conscious decision was made by the American establishment at the close of the 1960s. And what they said to themselves was, this idea of universal education and an educated citizenry, this we don't like. We see now the, what happens when you educate your citizens. They figure out the game and they come to you with their plans for reform and how to make it better. So I was like among, at least at the University of California, I was among the last people to go through that university where the goal was to inform you about the nature of the, of the enterprise called Western civilization. And after that, what they got into was this uh, MBA, data entry, uh, all this stuff. People, the, the universities became trade schools. And what they give you is video games. You know, they give you TV, video games, and they give you a skill. And you say, well, now you're a level three data enterer, uh, and you're gonna, we're going to give you $35,000 a year, and please shut up about it. That's it. You've been brought inside. But we're not interested in your opinions. We're giving you a life. We're giving you a trade. And we'll be giving you some orders downstream. And by God, you better snap too when the moment comes. This has nothing to do with democracy. This has this is fascism, is what it is. Yeah, everything is commoditized. Everything is. Uh, they assume that you and and. You know, people these days want to be secure. I don't really understand that. It's great. You need a certain critical mass to give that up. It's great when you and all your friends agree that you don't care whether you starve or not because you're going to have so much fun doing it. But it's hard to reach that place by yourself because it's not very much fun. But, you know, it, it, it's... Um, there is a problem in that we are manipulated and we are not empowered. And those who are empowered, it wouldn't be so bad if they had a plan. But their plan is, you know, another house, another Mercedes, a deeper swimming pool. This is no plan. Uh, and so it's up to the creativity of ordinary people. And the strongest weapon to support and augment the creativity of ordinary people is the psychedelic experience because it allows you to, to put information together in new and exciting ways. And this is to be then 
the basis of a new political order. It has to be. And if we don't react, then, um, you know, the mushroom said to me once, it said, uh, if you don't have a plan, you become part of somebody else's plan. Because there are only planners and planees, you know. So what do you want to do? You want to be part of somebody else's plan or get your own agenda together? Yeah. How does Well, you stop lying about it for openers. I mean, I deal with this with my children, you know. I mean, we live in an area where half the population grows dope and once a month they have anti-drug day at school and it's just the level of cultural schizophrenia is just awesome, you know. So I just tell my kids the truth. And I say, here's, here's what it is. There are good drugs and bad drugs, but mostly it's the monkey doing the drugs. And, uh, you know, inform yourself. Ask me. If you don't believe me, you know all these other people, shrinks, chemists. Avail yourself. Of, and I'm very pleased with, with how my kids are turning out. I mean, other people may look upon them with horror. I mean, <laughs> because they're... They don't take a lot of uh, crap from anybody, but they are of good heart and they trust themselves. Yeah. Well, no. The thing to do with the drugs on that level is let's unshackle psychotherapy and stop having it be this playpen game and actually get it into play. Psychotherapists are an incipient shaman class. I mean, obviously they aren't all, but that's the place to start. People who want to help people, people who have a a portion of a medical education, and people who are interested in the dynamics of the mind. If we all came up through uh, a series of initiations, where you know you were exposed first to this and then to that and then led on and always educated going in and always debriefed coming out, then these things would be, there would be no problem. We're just so weird about human nature. I mean, the sex thing has just been even mildly dealt with in the last 50 years and we forget you know, people didn't, most, I don't know. I mean, it's just weird. People barely knew where children came from until the 20th century. I mean, sex was very, very chancy and iffy and occasional. And you read the biographies of the people who created Western civilization, and they're mostly weirdos of some sort because they were bent by the sexual mores of the world they were living in. We have to, you know, the problem which haunted Marxism and which destroyed it ultimately was that they had the wrong version of what a human being is. They used to talk about what was called Marxist man. Well, Marxist man is such a limited concept of what people really are that it was, it just it collapsed under its own weight. On the other hand, Western man, this concept, is also a tremendously limited idea. We deny our roots in the animal body. We deny our roots in the life of the imagination. 
terrified of sex, you know, you have to do it in one position and it has to be a guy and a woman and it has to be within the confines of marriage and all this stuff. This is what was happening until very recently and still goes on, believe me, with enormous vehemence in a lot of places. Uh, and now drugs. I mean, drugs clearly are about human nature and, and the model of human nature which this society has deified makes it a, a, a pathological act, a sin and a crime to alter your own consciousness. This doesn't make any sense. We are at war with ourselves and we're losing. Um, why, why then not call well, because I think the word drug has been pretty thoroughly corrupted by the dominator. The way you corrupt a word is you, uh, you define it so broadly that it means nothing. And, you know, drug, we're talking about everything from DMT uh, through heroin and on to penicillin and aspirin. These are all drugs. So if we were, that's why I try to say psychedelics and and insist, you know, that these are not drugs. There's something else, yeah. I also see in the book sometimes you've heard of intoxication, and I wonder if that those terms sometimes confuse people as to the benevolent nature of the yeah, you may be right. I, I've been in this business so long that the word intoxication doesn't have that connotation for me. But one can never be too careful about the words one uses because they become realities. Uh, I'm not entirely happy with that book. I mean, And of course, once you write a book, then people come to you not only with criticisms but with suggestions and you see how it could have been a much, much better book. But on the other hand, it was right for that moment, or it was as right as I could make it uh, for that moment. Yeah. Did you want to? Nope. Anybody? Yeah, back here. Well, there's real, um, there's real youth phobia. Uh, youth is regarded as subversive. It's almost regarded as a standing army within society that belongs to a foreign power. Uh, the, the generational gap is not driven by the young, it's driven by the old who are nervous about giving up power. I mean, their attitude is, we can't trust you with the keys to the car. But the problem is, they're driving the car over the cliff at 200 miles an hour. So I don't really have an answer for this. I mean, I'm, I feel very, very fortunate in that I have very rarely and only for brief periods of time ever had to take orders from anybody. Uh, 
Now, in order to achieve that, I had to uh, do a number of things that prudence dictates I not even mention here. Uh, but I, it, you have to be very suspicious. You have to keep clear. They're always trying to get you down into the hole that they're in, you know. And, uh, yeah. Right. Right. It's a myth. You know, we always talk about the future and the past, but if you will analyze it for a moment, there are many pasts. I mean, very few of us were probably in the same place last night, but we're all here now. So that means that many pasts lead into this nexus of the present. And three weeks from now, we pro- very few of us will be together. I mean, some who came as couples, if they're lucky, will still be together. But So there are many futures and there are many pasts. And the thing to do is to realize that you're not being borne along on the current of some kind of inevitable thing where you're embedded in it like a raisin in bread. You're able to steer you know, you're able to steer away from things that are bringing you down, and you're able to make alliances and relationships which, with things which support you. It's all about personal empowerment. And personal empowerment means deconditioning yourself from the values and the programs of the society and putting your own values and programs in place. As long as you define yourself as a citizen, as long as you wait to be informed by NPR as to what the real nature of the world is, uh, you're not going, and I listen to NPR, I'm not not. they're the best of the lot, the best of the lot, because the rest is such garbage you can't even get near it. But nevertheless, I notice on NPR an enormous amount of whining. What you have to do is realize that you are what I call, or or that the thing to shoot for is what I call uh, extra environmentalism. You know how people sometimes say, I feel like a person from outer space? That doesn't sound like such a bad way to feel. That means that you see what's going down. You see the game that's being run, and you don't buy in. You know, they can't buy you with a Mercedes 
or uh, uh, business trips to Paris or something like that. You're smarter than that. It's, it's a kind of controlled alienation, you know, where you actually cultivate extra environmentalism. The great thing about an extra environmental is that you're at home everywhere. Every place is your home. And uh, therefore you are always comfortable. And you don't have to be with people of your class or your color or your uh, earning capacity to be to feel all right. My, I think I said this at one point, but my namesake is the Roman poet Terence. And he wrote these really trashy little social commentary plays. But one quote of his has come down as fairly memorable. He said, I am a human being, therefore nothing human is alien to me, you see. And that's this thing where you, you accept the human, you become the extra environmental. But when, when you're with the Japanese, you're perfectly able to accommodate yourself to their values and styles. When you're with folks in Lawrence, Kansas, you can come up to that measure. And it's a kind of shifting, it's a magical thing. It's a shamanic thing. You're a performer. You always move through these things with a sense that this is not who I am. This is not what I am. This is merely a response to the demands of the moment. Yeah. Well, because these realities are that in that understanding. You know, like people say, one of the things I, I once said to the mushroom, uh, why me? Why are you telling me all this stuff? And it, without hesitation, it said, because you don't believe anything. You don't believe anything. Uh, belief makes it impossible to believe the opposite proposition. And that means you've just truncated your freedom. No matter how noble the belief you have taken on, you have just rejected and limited your ability to believe other things. My favorite story in the... shows you how proud I am. My favorite story in the Gospels is the story of the Apostle Thomas. Because you will recall that um, after the crucifixion, uh, this is a good place to end. This is an alchemical story. After the crucifixion, uh, Christ appeared to the apostles in the upper room in Jerusalem 40 days after. And, uh, and Thomas was not there. I don't know where he was, somewhere. They'd sent him out for sandwiches or something. Anyway, he came back. And they said, uh, the master was with us. And he said, come on, you guys. He said, you've been smoking too much red lab we brought in three weeks ago. And they said, no, no, the master was with us. And he said, unless I put my hand into the wound, I will not believe it. So then time passed. And then Christ came again. To the apostles and uh, Thomas was among them on this second get-go 
and Christ walked in and kicked off his overshoes and looked around the room and he said, Thomas, come forward. Put your hand into the wound, which he did, which he did. Now, people have different interpretations of this story. My interpretation of it, which is what I'm view with, is that alone among all human beings in all of human history, only one person was ever so privileged as to be allowed to touch the resurrection body. It was Thomas the Doubter who was allowed to touch the resurrection body because he didn't believe. And so if you want to touch the resurrection body, be very careful with where you commit your belief. Keep your eyes open, stay smart, take it easy. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. And so, if you want to touch the resurrection body, be very careful with where you commit your belief. Keep your eyes open, stay smart, take it easy. (laughs) And yes, that is exactly where this recording cut off. Now, uh, you can chalk it up to the elves or whatever you want, but nonetheless, we are left with filling in the rest of that sentence on our own. Now, I don't know how you'd do it, but for me, I still hear him ending his workshops by saying, take it easy, keep the old faith, and stay high. Now, uh, I've got an assignment for you. Actually, uh, you'd have to be even more of a geek than me to do this, but uh, (laughs) in truth, I'd love to know the answer to this. We've just heard about five hours of Terence covering an amazingly wide range of information, uh, complete with references, and all done without the aid of notes. Now, my question is, if you go back to the beginning of this four-part series and re-listen, all the time cataloging each topic and subtopic, I would uh, dearly love to see an outline of the workshop just to uh, visually take in the huge number of topics he seemed to uh, have quite ready at his fingertips. And uh, if you want to really geek out on this talk, uh, I'd love to hear one of our fellow saloners tell me in very simple language <laughs> just what the heck Terrence meant when he was talking about time travel and said, your grandchildren may live in a world that existed before you were born. I've listened to that part three times now, and uh, I still can't get a handle on it. <laughs> Now, I guess it uh, must have been well known among Terence's close associates that uh, he'd been working on a play about the alchemist Michael Meyer, but uh, that was the first time I heard about it myself, and uh, unless there's a copy on his hard drive, which uh, I understand is still in existence somewhere, uh, well, it may have tragically been lost in the fire that uh, destroyed the entire McKenna archive. Hopefully, uh, some of his work in progress uh, may still be around on that drive somewhere. Now, I know that in my last podcast or so, I said I'd give you some of my impressions from the recent Psychedelic Science Conference, but uh, once again, I'm a little pressed for time right now, and we'll have to put that off a while longer. However, uh, since we're just finishing this series about alchemy, I want to be sure to mention that uh, Paul, who is the legendary alchemist behind uh, alchemy, that's A-L-Q-E-M-I, alchemy.com, 
he told me he's planning on offering a two-part course in alchemy and uh, that the first part would be an online course. And uh, once that's firmed up, I'll pass the information along to you. But uh, you may want to visit his site uh, at www.al-qemi.com uh, for a little look around. And from what my friends tell me, uh, Paul is not just another modern alchemist. He is uh, actually a 17th century alchemist. And uh, by the way, if you have a wake-and-bake habit that you'd like to break, I can uh, recommend his calamus tincture uh, as something you might want to look into. C-A-L-A-M-U-S. And uh, one last thing I want to leave you with uh, from the conference is... uh, What for me was the high point, and that is uh, meeting new friends like J.C. and Shane and uh, reconnecting with longtime friends like Dave Arnson, who uh, it seems like I've known forever. Uh, Besides being an alumnus of uh, many conferences, festivals, and salons, Dave is also the founding member of the world's longest-running modern surf band, the Insect Surfers. Uh, You know, a few weeks ago I played a cut from a new group called Softpack, a group that includes a shirt-tail relative of mine, I should add. So now I thought I would sort of balance that with a well-established West Coast group featuring some extended family members and fellow saloners. So I'm going to close by playing a cut from the Insect Surfers CD that's titled Mojave Reef. And uh, the song I picked uh, is called Black Sea, and it features my good friend Dave playing an electric saz that he picked up in Istanbul a while back. So for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends, and I hope you enjoy the surfadelic sounds. Surfadelic Sounds